0: It's one of those fugitive thoughts I've harbored on and off for the last couple years. Like, why do not I laugh as much as I used to? You know, I still remember the laughs I had with friends back then. And once in a while it happens, but I don't feel like I've wept with laughter in recent years. And I don't know if that's a function of age or if it's because things are genuinely significantly less funny. <laughs> I mean, it's a grim time.
1: Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. Before I introduce my guest this week, Tim Kreider, several announcements. I'll try to be uh, as quick as possible here. The first is that I am offering a writing workshop this fall. There were a lot of requests for this, so here it is it's a personal essay and memoir class. We're doing it on Zoom, six consecutive Wednesdays from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern time, starting on September 6th. So you can go to my Substack and find out more about that. You don't have to be a paying subscriber to see that post. I used to have a website dedicated to the class, but I had so many websites floating around. It was getting confusing. So I'm trying to keep everything on the Substack to go to megandumb.substack.com to find out about the writing class. Second thing is that I have added a one-day unspeakeasy retreat to the calendar this year. It's going to happen in Denver on Saturday, September 30th. That is going to be running all day, probably 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. or so That will be the women's retreat portion. We'll have guest speakers. It'll be like a sped up version of the weekend retreat. And we'll also have a party in the evening, an unspeakeasy for all event that men are invited to. If they have any connection to the women at the event, figure out how that works. So go to the unspeakeasy.com and request information about our one day retreat on September 30th in Denver. What's next? In Los Angeles, I have an event coming up. I'm going to be in conversation with the writer Adrienne Brodeur. Uh, she has a new novel out called Little Monsters. You may know her from her massively popular bestselling memoir, Wild Game, which came out a few years ago. I'm going to be interviewing her at Skylight Books in Los Feliz on Wednesday, July 26th at 7 p.m., go to skylightbooks.com to find out about that. And finally, breaking news. This podcast now has a YouTube channel. Yes. I don't know how we ever survived with that one. Uh, That does not mean I'm doing this on video. I'm going to just be uploading the audio episodes to YouTube, but apparently no one under 30 consumes any content unless it's on YouTube or TikTok. So If you're somebody who wasn't able to take in this show because it wasn't on YouTube, now you have no excuse. The uh, channel is called The Unspeakable Podcast on YouTube. So just FYI there. Okay, my guest is writer Tim Kreider. Even if you think you don't recognize his name, there is a good chance you've read his work. In addition to his two collections of essays, We Learn Nothing, and I Wrote This Book Because I Love You, Tim has published many essays in the New York Times opinion section, nearly all of which seem to go viral. The first such essay was The Busy Trap, and that was published more than 10 years ago, wherein Tim called out Americans' perpetual condition of being crazy busy, as he puts it, a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy. There's a lot more where that came from, including an essay about knowing people are talking about you behind your back, which is something you may have heard me talk about before here. A line from that essay has become a rather famous meme, and Tim talks about what it's like to be memefied. He also talks about his thoughts about writing about himself, writing about other people, getting stabbed, not having kids, the difficulty of living with another person as you get older, and also a phenomenon he describes as the soul to pay. As you will hear, Tim is a personal friend of mine. So there's a nice kind of intimacy to this conversation. And for paying subscribers, Tim stays overtime and talks about what it's like to be 56 years old. That's the age his father was when he died, which Tim said at the time he felt like you know was, was old enough. He also talks about dating his fans, Although he insists they're not really fans anymore once you start dating them. To which I say, speak for yourself. They should really become bigger fans after they start dating you. If you are not yet a paying subscriber and you want to hear that part, go to megandown.substack.com and access it and a bunch of other perks. And in the meantime, here's my interview with Tim Kreider. Tim Kreider. Welcome to The Unspeakable.
0: Hi, Megan. Thanks. Nice to be here.
1: I can't believe that you have never been here before because I cite your work frequently. And I believe there was one episode in which the guest and I talked about you behind your back in glowing terms
0: well, that's how I like to imagine everyone talking about me behind my back.
1: Yeah, it's, it's pretty much an ideal scenario. So yes, it, I've been doing this podcast for three years, and I can't believe this is the first time you're here. Although I think I may have asked you at least once in the past when there was a, either a scheduling issue.
0: I'm sure I said yes and then forgot about it.
1: No, I think you just ignored my text, actually. Um, all right. Well, you are an essayist. You uh have a, a couple of books. You're also a cartoonist. You've got some books of cartoons. You write occasionally for the New York Times, and it seems like every single thing you write ends up going viral. And it's it's strange. You would think that you would be much more famous considering I,
0: that. I You would think that, yeah.
1: I want to start by talking about what is, I think, my favorite essay of yours. It, it goes by two names. It appeared in the New York Times under the name, I Know What You Think of Me. And it also appears in your collection of essays, I Wrote This Book Because I Love You, under a different title. It is an, an essay that is not only often quoted, it has been memified. There's a particular uh, quote, uh, line in it that like, appears in, in thought balloons, like on people's Instagrams and, and right. such. And it's quite astonishing, actually. So why don't you tell us what this essay is about, and then I'll have you just read a little bit from that particular passage.
0: Well, once in a while, you'll see someone online discover the source of that quote. Uh, and they're always, they always marvel at the fact that it comes from an essay that starts out to be about me getting a missent email from my agent, actually. Uh, it was, you know, it was a classic case of hitting reply all instead of reply. And what I had written her about was having rented a herd of goats of which I was very proud. Uh, you can do this, you know, to crop your lawn. It's a great method of lawn control. Uh, and I was, you know, I was experiencing some old Testament pride in ownership of a herd and, uh, just wanted to share with people that I had rented goats. And she felt that maybe, I was squandering my advance money on frivolous things like goats, not realizing how utilitarian and important goats are.
1: Especially if you're an author and you're relying on, on, you've got to live off the land increasingly because the (laughs) royalties are just not coming in.
0: As we all soon will. Yeah, in fact, I'll I'll read just the first two paragraphs, uh, which may well say more eloquently what I just said. Okay. I recently received an email that was about me, but wasn't for me. I'd been CC'd by accident. This is one of the hazards of email, reason 697 why the internet is bad, the apocalyptic consequence of hitting reply all instead of reply. I had rented a herd of goats for reasons that aren't relevant here and had sent out a mass email with attached photograph of my goats to illustrate that A, I had goats, and B, having goats was good. There turns out to be something primally satisfying about possessing livestock. A man wants to boast of his herd. Most respondents expressed appropriate admiration and envy of my goats, but the email in question from my agent was intended as a forward to some of her coworkers, sighing over the frivolous expenditures on which I was frittering away my advance. The word oof was used. So this essay goes on to be about the horror of knowing for a fact that other people are talking about you behind your back, even as you are talking about them behind theirs and how it is harmless and, and without ill intent when you do it, but devastating and cruel and a betrayal when others do it to you.
1: Right. And so the, the quote in question, uh, we should just say it. This
0: is— uh, Wow, jeez. You'd think I would know it for beta. Well, I know Wouldn't it. Share. No,
1: I'm going to say it. I wasn't—that was—I was not uh, queuing you up. I'm just going to say it. Very well. So, the mortifying ordeal of being known.
0: Yes uh and often it's it's often paired with the preceding clause it's if we want the rewards of being loved, you also have to submit to the mortifying ordeal of being known. so you often see things in a meme labeled those two things: the rewards of being loved and then the mortifying ordeal of being known
1: okay, and that's comes from the last paragraph of this piece. so
0: can you yeah. read that and I remember in fact someone this was a long time ago when I still read comments on the internet and someone um Refuse to believe that the dream I describe in this was real because it seems too apt, you know, too spot on. A friend of mine once had a dream about a strange and terrible device, a staircase you could descend deep underground in which you heard recordings of all the things anyone had ever said about you, both good and bad. The catch was you had to pass through all the worst things people had said first before you could get to the best things said about you at the very bottom. This wasn't even my dream, and my friend told me about it over a quarter century ago, but I've never forgotten it. There is no way I would make it down more than two and a half steps of such a staircase. But the dream metaphor is clear enough. If you want to enjoy the rewards of being loved, you also have to submit to the mortifying ordeal of being known. (sighs) So there we are. Why of all the things I've ever written, that's the one that, that went viral and became a meme who who can say not it's not for me
1: when you wrote it did it like feel profound or special to you in the moment <laughs>
0: not profound or special i don't know i'm i guess i'd be embarrassed to hope anything i wrote was profound the best you hope for is this is not stupid this is an insight original enough or that you haven't heard often enough that it seems worth saying that it seems yeah. worth worth people's time
1: i mean People talking about you behind your back, it is kind of like the final frontier of self-awareness. Like it's Mm – you really – there's just no need to know what they're saying. It's kind of like you don't need to know what your ass looks like. You really just don't (laughs) need to see the back of yourself.
0: Um, Yeah. Well – I mean, as I said, I don't read internet comments anymore. And I stopped doing that very early on in my career as even a minor public figure. I realized they're not for you, you know, they're, they're not intended for you and they're not, it's just not to your benefit to read them because all anything generous that people say about you will pass through your brain like a neutrino and anything cruel or, or even you know, qualified that they say is just going to stick in you like a spear for the rest of your life. And you'll be able to quote it verbatim decades later.
1: But the piece is not about internet comments. It's about our actual friends. So read the the part where you talk about like, we're all ridiculous, like just how absurd all of us are and how our friends observe it.
0: Let's see. Those moments when you overhear others describing you without censoring themselves for your benefit are like catching a glimpse of yourself in a mirror without having first combed your hair and correctly arranged your face. See, this is this speaks to your, you know, it's best not to see your own ass statement. Right. Or seeing a candid photo of yourself online, not smiling or posing, but just looking the way you apparently always do, <laughs> oblivious and mush-faced with your mouth open. I've written essays about friends that I felt were generous and empathetic, but that they experienced as devastating. I've also been written about in ways I had no factual quarrel with, but that nonetheless made me wince to read. It is simply not pleasant to be objectively observed. It's proof that you are visible, that you're seen in all your naked silliness and stupidity. Needless to say, this makes us embarrassed and angry and damn the people who've thus betrayed us as vicious two-faced hypocrites. Which, in fact, everyone is. Gossiping and making fun of each other are among the most ancient and enjoyable of human amusements. And we should really know better than to confuse this with true cruelty. Of course we make fun of the people we love. They're ridiculous. Anyone worth knowing is inevitably also going to be complicated, difficult, and exasperating. Making the same obvious mistakes over and over, squandering their money, dating imbeciles, endlessly relapsing into dumb addictions and self-defeating habits, blind to their own hilarious flaws and blatant contradictions and fiercely devoted to whatever keeps them miserable. And those people about whom there is nothing ridiculous are the most ridiculous of all. (laughs) It is necessary to make fun of them in order to take them as seriously as we do. Just as teasing someone to his face is a way of letting him know that you know him better than he thinks, that you've got his number, making fun of him behind his back is a way of bonding with your mutual friends, reassuring each other that you both know and love. And are driven crazy by this same person.
1: Yeah, so I think it's important to draw a distinction between gossip and analysis. You do use the word gossip here, but I feel Mm -hmm. like there's there's a difference between gossiping behind somebody's back, which would be like just spilling their secrets, or just engaging in mean spirited kind of just observations about about their their biggest weaknesses, and actually just sort of. Putting them in the context of of the greater world. Like, there's a difference between being an anthropologist and being a a harpy.
0: Yeah. Though that kind of behind-the-back gossip can also serve the function of reassuring one another that you're not crazy. It's not just you. Yes. In fact, I was just telling a story this morning about feeling awful because I yelled at my elderly mother. Because she, she always told me to stop at this certain stop sign. And, you know, it's a red octagonal stop sign. I've seen them many times. I know to stop at them. And she couldn't stop herself from telling me stop. And I discovered, to my relief, that my sister also had yelled at our mother for her insufferable backseat driving. And it made me feel less horrible. And, you know, there's nobody who is driven crazy by your parents in the same way as your siblings. And that's a kind of bonding exercise, you know, to talk about your friends who are, you know, crazy and insufferable, as we all are, and, you know, reassure each other that, oh, yeah, yeah, that's not just you. They're that way. I, I had a friend who gave a great toast at uh, a mutual friend's wedding, and he said, I don't know why I love this guy. If you're here tonight, you probably don't know why you love him either. <laughs> um, and indeed, he's a very difficult friend. <laughs> But there's something endearing about them.
1: What are the things you think people are saying behind your back?
0: You know what? I'm just—I'm not even going to speculate. I—I I, I don't think it would be good for me. I—I <laughs> <laughs> I really try to block this sort of thing out of my head. I'm very successful at that.
1: And do you think that that is a sign of mental health blocking it
0: out? Mm, no, probably. I probably—I think it's a. I think it's a sign of some fragility that I can't withstand uh, even imagining what their criticisms or complaints might be. But, you know, given that fragility, I think it's a sign of mental health to keep it out of my head rather than inflicting it on myself masochistically or, or, you know, to nurture vindictive, wounded feelings.
1: Right. Yeah. I I mean, I feel like I live so much of my life avoiding certain information or just like not, it's just, I don't want to hear, I'm on a need to know basis kind of with a lot of things. Uh, I
0: I had a friend who's roughly my age. Um, She's Gen X and she had just no patience with the sort of aggressive honesty of polyamory. Uh, She was just like, just cheat on me. You know, (laughs) old school cheating, just lie to my face, have the decency to cheat.
1: Yeah. Uh, that's funny. I just did a, I interviewed a guest about polyamory recently. I wonder what she would say to that. She, 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 she practices polyamory, but she hates the, uh, the community. She hates the poly community.
0: The sex dorks. For for
1: these very reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I have this, like, this is the biggest humble brag ever, but it it really is germane. So like one time I was like, I was in a theater, I was seeing a, a play or something and, I could hear, there were these two guys behind me and I could suddenly, I heard my name, I heard them say my name and then I heard them like spec, then I heard the name of one of my books and like, I heard them speculating about me. Like they, they were, they were strangers to me, but they had like recognized me as if I was some kind of public figure and they were having a debate as to whether it really was me. And, you know, I was hearing like, well, oh, I didn't think she was in New York. I thought she lived in California. This was happening in New York. And I became so terrified that they were going to say something mean about me and that I was going to have to hear it, (laughs) that I just turned around and I said, yes, it is me. I can hear you. And I'm stopping you right now because I don't want you to say something that's going to hurt my feelings.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations. I I think that was wise. (laughs) I had someone write me a letter telling me... uh, I had written an essay about the sadness of getting gifts you don't want. Um, And I'd written about some present my mom gave me that I was never going to wear and how sad it made me. And I carried it around with me for years. And someone wrote me a letter and revealed in the first line that they were going to chastise me for having written this essay. And I just immediately threw it out, but did not read past the first half line. Like, there's no reason to allow that into my head.
1: You you are a beloved writer, though I saw a, a quote. I, was it? I don't even think it was a mortifying ordeal of being known. There was some other quote of yours that I saw recently in the comment section of a piece in the New York Times about some woman who would like run a marathon oh, uh, every yeah. day for a year or something. Um, right. Or no, maybe it was quoted in the piece. I don't know. And anyway, like you, you, to see something that you wrote in the context of an extreme athlete, uh, that was, that was new.
0: It was disconcerting as, yeah, not my intention in writing it. I did not mean to endorse physical activity of any kind.
1: No, no. Well, so how did you, let's just, you know, do our due diligence. You were a cartoonist for a long time. When did you actually start writing?
0: Well, I wasn't supposed to be a cartoonist. I was supposed to be a writer. I went to school for writing. Uh that's what I majored in in college uh and you know i I always was interested in art too, but I felt like ultimately what I wanted to do was be a writer. but back then, this was you know the late eighties there there weren't programs in nonfiction writing, and that really wasn't a thing that you set out to be. Right. You know, being an essayist wasn't so much of a thing. Um or, or <laughs> not like now when people are yeah.
1: making a killing.
0: Uh and so what you were supposed to do is write short stories and then a novel. And I just did not then, nor do I now have any idea how you would possibly go about doing that. And instead what I did was wrote just hundreds of letters to friends and other correspondents over the years. And I never stopped doing that. And occasionally I would write an essay or article about something or other, but I was mostly being a, a cartoonist and getting paid $20 a week. And that finally ran its course. Like I, I became a political cartoonist in the war on terror years and got burnt out on that. And then i just got published by sort of a fluke in the New York Times, which started career number two um, as an essayist, which was now a thing you could be. Also not very lucratively, but you could be for,
1: one. For $40 a week. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And was this the busy trap?
0: Uh no the the very first thing I ever wrote for the Times was uh d- defense of pluto's planethood but that was a couple few years before I started my run of essays at the Times. Uh that was sort of a one-shot deal and I thought okay that's probably the thing that'll be written about in my obits is he was a defender of pluto.
1: This is when pluto got uh degraded to to dwarf planet. Yeah. Uh, or or little I don't think you can say dwarf anymore. It's not like little
0: person planet. There's a little person planet. <laughs> um, the thing that I sent in an essay about was about alcohol. Uh, and that came to the attention of an editor there, Peter Catapano, who is still my guy at the New York Times. He, uh, that was a series on alcohol. And that series was ending, but he really liked that essay and asked me to be a contributor to the next series, which was, I think, on happiness. Um, so I had a run for a few years of writing essays for him at the times. And he had a nice, secure little ecological niche at the times, uh, doing personal essays. He did a, a blog called the stone about philosophy and solicited essays from philosophers. Wow. Um, and they're not doing so much that kind of work anymore there. Um, but it got, you know, my, my first essay there. Got the attention of my editor, the fab. Sorry, my agent, the fabulous Meg Thompson, and then, in as much as I have a career, that's that's what got it started. So I just had like a detour of ten or twenty years where I accidentally became a cartoonist instead.
1: Tell us about the busy trap. What year was that, and what was your
0: message? Well, I just looked it up. It's twenty twelve. That arose in reaction to, I still remember, a particular phone call uh, from a friend of mine. Uh, he's the same one about whom his best man said, I don't know why I like this guy. And this friend has a habit of hanging up on you pretty much 100% of the time. Like he either conveys or obtains the information that he wanted to impart or gain in the phone call and then hangs up and you find yourself still talking, but now the line is dead. <laughs> anyway, in this particular iteration of that call Uh, he was going on about, I was like, well, we should get together. He's like, yeah, we should totally get together sometime. I'm like, I am saying that right now. When can we get together? Uh, And he's like, yeah, things are just really crazy right now. Crazy busy. I'll talk to you soon. And then uh, again, I was talking to a deadline, but I felt like it was a time when I was hearing that a lot. And I think that it was, A different phase of the same economic cycle we're in, whereas now people have sort of lost their will to live and and feel like capitalism's all bullshit. Back then, the treadmill was just getting faster and faster, and people were still frantically trying to keep up. And some people were reacting with a kind of masochistic pride to it. Like boasting about how busy they were. Other people were just breathlessly complaining about it, but everyone just accepted it as the condition of life at that time.
1: Okay. And do you see yourself as not busy?
0: Uh, I wasn't then. Uh, I got busier for a while. Then the pandemic, of course, uh, ceased almost all busyness unless you were in one of the industries that had to, you know, feed or help everybody else who was trapped in their apartments. Yeah. My, my position was anti-busyness. Yeah. Like I, I tried to cultivate as best I could a lifestyle of not being busy, kind of a 19th century lifestyle. Well, I guess I should say an aristocratic 19th century lifestyle, not a child labor in a sweatshop lifestyle. You know, I just liked writing letters and running errands and reading books and um, maybe having one social engagement in the day. (laughs) I mean, I still, that's still an ideal life for me, but yeah, I mean, not everyone's in a position to be able to do that. Uh, What I was criticizing wasn't people who were like desperately running on the treadmill for survival, but people who had tried to turn that necessity into a virtue and be proud of what seemed to me like pointless, frenetic, activity.
1: Yeah, no, it does seem to be a status thing to talk about how busy you are.
0: Yeah, I don't know if that's still true. Um, mm. I was asked to revisit that essay recently, and um, I wrote something else entirely. And I felt like that was the zeitgeist at it when the treadmill was at a certain velocity before people knew how fast it was going to go. Mm. And I, I feel now that the ethos is more like, you know what, fuck this shit. Like... <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's the concept of, uh, working your wage. You know, this phrase.
1: Working your wage.
0: Isn't that what it's called? Yeah. Where, where you're not doing extra work to try to impress anybody at work. Cause. The, oh, they, this is
1: like the quiet quitting.
0: Yeah. Quiet quitting or acting your wage maybe is the phrase. Does oh, acting
1: make- your wage. Oh, like yeah. act your age. Exactly. Is that like a little turn of phrase? Oh, yes. I never heard that.
0: Um, Right. And I think that that's the ethos that seems more dominant, at least, you know, from what I look at in memes online. Which tells you all you need
1: to know. That's
0: eclipsed this sort of perverse pride in how frantically busy you are.
1: So, like, what is your life like as as a writer? So, like, you know, as we said at the beginning, almost all of your pieces in The New York Times have gone viral. You're quoted all over the place. You hear from fans and readers all the time. And yet, uh, most of the time when I see you in New York, you're, like, uh, couch surfing or living in somebody else's apartment.
0: I am, I'm in someone else's apartment as we speak. I am paying rent here, but it's definitely not my apartment.
1: What What, what is your your uh, sort of uh, career advice
0: for uh, aspiring writers? Oh, my Lord. I feel a little fraudulent talking about being a writer right now because I, I, I feel like I haven't been much of a writer since the pandemic. You know, I had that cushy medium gig for a while and that went away oh, yeah. along, along with Who was everything that thanks else. To? Uh, Oh, that was you, wasn't it? Yes. (laughs) Thank you. And
1: I I remember one time you sent me the, uh, you know, they sent you like little. This this is for Medium, so I was writing for Medium for a while, and then I and then I got uh, you this gig uh, as well, and uh, a similar gig, and you sent me a little royalty statement. They have like a partnership program. That was from the
0: partnership program. It was for
1: uh, what was your statement? What did you had? What had you earned that quarter?
0: I don't know. I think like those top out around $11.
1: It was one cent. No, it was a <laughs> statement for one cent. And, That's and I, I think of you all the time because I periodically get those statements. And I believe the last one I got was for $3.04.
0: That's pretty good. Once in a while, there's some crazy spike in in my popularity and I get like $11, $12. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. But, you know, that was a... Aside from the partnership program, and that was just a standalone piece where they're not paying you outright, but if it takes off and goes viral, then you'll share in the profits, which are (laughs) like along the the lines of one cent a month. (laughs) Um, But for a while, it was a a very cushy paying gig, Uh, and then it went away along with everything else in the pandemic. And since then, I've really been struggling to get interested in writing anything. I'd like to write another book, but... All that, I, I don't know. Theoretically, it should have been possible to write an entire book in quarantine. Maybe some people did, but I. Well,
1: don't. Many people did. Uh, well, damn I, like, them all. Many people, I, I know some people who wrote entire novels in like the, the first six weeks of the. Well, the I hate them. I they're not coming not. on this show. I can tell you that. <laughs> uh,
0: no, I felt, I don't know, my attention span really suffered. My ability to concentrate did. I mean, Social worker friends of mine are very consoling about this and say, you know, a lot of your attention gets devoted to stress, to to going into survival mode. You know, it's like on Star Trek when you got to divert all power to the shields. Uh, And so I didn't have a lot left over for writing. And I'm now on Substack, and I still produce maybe one essay a month, but it's not a lot. I, I haven't summoned up the interest to write another book yet. Everyone would like me to write one book about one thing, not an essay collection. I know. It it turns out nobody buys those.
1: I know. Well, but yeah, but nobody buying a book used to not be so much of a problem in publishing. They would give you a a book contract anyway. They really like them
0: to buy them now.
1: Uh, Now, I know. It seems quite unfair. So what kinds of things are you writing about on Substack?
0: Uh, I just wrote a piece about the the importance of choosing a good artistic nemesis. This I mentioned my friend Dana earlier. She, she just had a book come out, which is a kind of parody of self-help, how to be creative books. It's called Skip to the Fun Parts. And um, one of her chapters is on this very topic, choosing an artistic nemesis and how they can be motivational. And we had a conversation about it. And a lot of my essays start out as conversations with people. I want them yeah. to read like, like, you know, conversations around last call you know, uninhibited, but still lucid. And so I wrote about how a nemesis is helpful to you. It can be beneficial to the extent that you define yourself more clearly in opposition to this person. Right. They they are something you do not want to be.
1: Oh, okay. Not somebody that you're jealous of. I see. Uh, you
0: may well be jealous. Often it's someone like, you know, I'm not jealous of I'm sorry, I'm not summoning up any good popular examples to mine, but it has to be someone who does something sufficiently similar to what you do that you can recognize their game right. and you can call them on their bullshit. Like you can see where they're being lazy or dishonest or eliding something and it bugs you.
1: But and what especially
0: if they're, if they're highly successful doing it, I that. was
1: going to say, what if they're more successful than you? How can well, you that's even, when they're your that. I see, I see. Well, how is it writing directly for an audience? I mean, this is something that I struggle with. I don't think – you and I have not talked about this particular thing, but I have found writing for Substack um, fairly vexing because, A, I don't like asking people for money. I know you're not asking them for money. They're paying for a product. But I I would far rather get paid by a faceless corporation than by people, individual human beings whose names and email addresses I can see. And I can see when they sign up and when they unsubscribe. And I also find it very weird not to have an editor.
0: Yeah, I know. You have to self-edit, which hopefully you're fairly good at by now, but you still don't have the advantage that an editor does of not being you. (laughs) So it's always possible that unbeknownst to you, you suck. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, it's not unbeknownst to me. I, I can tell you. I, I I know. I full. I know full well how much I suck. Yeah, I had a thing recently where I wrote an essay. I find that I keep circling around the same topic over and over again. And uh, I actually, I wrote a piece for the Substack, and I gave it to somebody to just give a quick eyeball to, like a copy edit, and. uh, she said, you know, this paragraph here, it's almost verbatim a paragraph that you wrote like last month in, mm. in a piece. And I had absolutely no recollection of writing it. And it was a horrifying moment.
0: Well, that's happened to me. But I think that's just a hazard of having to crank out at what they now call content. You know, you see this happen to people who have regular columns, no matter how good they may yeah. be. You just don't have something original to say all that often. And it's a it's a luxury to be able to wait until you do to say it. But, you know, if you're cranking out content because people are subscribing or because, you know, you're employed to do a column every other week, uh, it's hard not to return to the same thoughts over and over. I mean, we're all just limited people with certain preoccupations. Yeah. Um, well,
1: how do you I mean, feel... One,
0: no, Sorry, no. No, no, well, it's one reason I've been, I've been reluctant to start charging for subscriptions, because then I actually have to keep writing stuff. Oh, so you don't charge? Well, I haven't yet, but this is really just a matter of laziness than anything else. <laughs> um, the whole idea is to start charging. I got an email recently from Substack notifying me that I now had enough pledges to make, and I don't want you to get jealous, but as much as $1,000 a year. <laughs>
1: Well, don't get too big for your britches. What do you? <laughs> how do you feel about writing about yourself now? Because uh, I have been struggling for the last couple of years with writing about myself. In fact, I wrote. So when when I was at Medium, I, I, I like you, I had the actual paid Medium column for mm-hmm. a couple of years, uh, very well paid. And uh, I knew and it was I, a
0: cushy gig. It
1: really was, and uh, I. The, and the you know the thing is that nobody read the pieces because they were paywalled. Mm. So I had these pieces and then it got, uh, you know, continually demoted. And then I was sort of became like less often. And then it was, Oh, and then it was more often, but for less money that that they wanted, And then it became like a blog. And so in one of the blog pieces, I remember writing, I'm too old to write about myself anymore. Hmm. And I felt that I just had become acutely aware that like the older you get, the less the world feels like a novelty for you, the less you have that thing that that young people have, which is that everything you experience, you think that you're the only person to have experienced this, and it feels yeah. like something you want to write about. Like you just go out and have what is really a fairly banal experience, but you want to run home and like, you know, whip out you know a couple thousand words about it. And and I just don't have that anymore because I don't presume to have anything original to say. And in a way, that's a mature instinct, but it's also pretty creatively stifling.
0: Yeah. I mean, you, you require the delusion initially that whatever you have to say might be interesting to someone else in order to write anything at all. I mean, my, this was not always true, but, but since I started my actual career as a writer, like in my 40s. My MO was always, I mean, obviously I'm taking myself and the people I know as subject because I am a lazy person and don't do research. I just write about what actually happens to me. But I never want the essays to be about me. I want them to be about the reader. And so I'm trying to find commonality in whatever I'm writing about. Like, even if it's something unusual, like renting goats, you want to find what there is in it that speaks to the reader's experience. And and for that reason, like an extraordinary experience is perversely difficult to write about. Like those experiences make good stories to tell in bars because the only takeaway is like, it was so fucked up. My life is cool and interesting. (laughs) So, you know, I, I've always tried not to write about myself in that sense I mean I think you do get less interested in your own life <laughs> uh, you find yourself a less fascinating individual you get a little sick of yourself as you get older yeah. And I feel like things seem less funny than they used to I mean I was a cartoonist for a long time and you know even the darkest parts, especially the darkest parts of existence, seemed hilarious at times. And things seem less funny as well as less novel and interesting.
1: Why does it seem less funny? Is it because we're older and it's just not as cute and charming?
0: I don't know. That's a really good question. It's one of those fugitive thoughts I've harbored on and off for the last couple years. Like, why do not I laugh as much as I used to? You know, I still remember the laughs I had with friends back then. And once in a while it happens, but I don't feel like I've wept with laughter in recent years. And I don't know if that's a function of age or if it's because things are genuinely significantly less funny. (laughs) I mean, it's a grim time.
1: It's a grim time, but wow, I've actually never thought about this as you are articulating it. But I, I think it's true. I haven't laughed that hard either. I used to laugh a lot, yeah. Like, and there, but you know, I did laugh, and you'll appreciate this because I know you're a fan of Loveline with Adam Carolla and and Dr. Drew. Yes, um,
0: <laughs> I was. Uh, Thanks for outing me.
1: Look, I, Dr. Drew's been a guest on this podcast. I, I have uh, I have interviewed uh, Adam. I, I am completely out about the brilliance of, of Loveline, and in fact, I I believe that that they were the first uh, the, the the first heterodox uh, podcast. So anyway. I was listening to an old, not quite as old as, like, the old love line, but I was listening to an episode of uh, Dr. Drew and Adam podcast from several years ago. And uh, Adam was doing, like, his, you know, sort of montage of cliched things that, like, morning AM drive disc jockeys say, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not here to make friends. It was just this, you know, string of uh, cliches. And I was laughing out loud. I, I I distinctly remember I was cleaning my my house. I was not only cleaning the house. I was I was cleaning the walls of my house. I was like had a mop and a so- mm-hmm. I had like soap and a rag and I was scrubbing my walls because they get really. Uh, this is too much information, but because I have a large slobbery dog, the, the walls get kind of dirty. And I was doubled over laughing. As I was uh, scrubbing the walls, and I thought, "Wow, I have not laughed in a really long time." And I think it's because the content has changed. Frankly, the content
0: of, life. of like
1: of of media. I mean, yeah. not that not that anything that he was saying was like so transgressive or politically incorrect mm-hmm. or from before times or anything. It wasn't even that old, but there is, it's, it's such a, it's become so hackneyed at this point to say like, oh, nothing's funny anymore. And you know, cancel culture and you're not allowed to make jokes. And like, I, I think this is a little bit of a different point that we're trying to drill down to here.
0: Well, I'd like, I'd, I'd like to know from, maybe I'll ask my students this semester, like, do they laugh that much? <laughs> I just feel like there was a, I was desperately unhappy in my twenties, but there were a lot of laughs. Yes. laughs. And maybe the desperate unhappiness and the lots of laughs go hand in hand. I, I don't know. Although I feel pretty unhappy now. I just don't laugh as much.
1: <laughs> well, that's good to know. I feel like I used to try to get myself into situations that, that I could potentially write about. And so by definition, they tended to be funny.
0: Well, true. Yeah. I think when you're young, you have a much higher tolerance for Potentially unpleasant, but interesting situations. Yeah. Things that, things that will make a good story later.
1: Okay, so why does that go away? Because I, I really always felt that was the secret sauce to life. Like, even if something was bad, it's interesting, so.
0: Well, some of those experiences turn out to be very unpleasant indeed. Also, I don't know, maybe, maybe the things that used to interest you don't anymore. Like, there, there's so much... I still remember looking at an apartment somewhere and the guy who was showing it to me was just a different incarnation of a friend of mine. He was like the new version of that guy. Um, and I recognized him instantly. And I, I wonder if eventually you just start recognizing situations and people oh. and feeling like, oh yeah, I've, I've been through this before. I know this person.
1: Wow, did you ever like get into relationships with people like romantic relationships because you knew it would be kind of madcap and a great story? I mean, you did write a whole book about relationships, not necessarily all romantic relationships, but I wrote this book because I love you is about relationships. Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely, about.
0: I looking back, I, I certainly used to have much more of the stereotypical attraction to. Women who are charismatically crazy, or uh, you know, seem seem likely to lead to adventure, but getting stabbed will cure you of that fast. And you know, there was a woman involved in the incident where I got stabbed in the throat. And yeah, I just wait, have- wait,
1: hang on. I don't think we can just leave this hanging here. So you 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 did get stabbed, uh, and you you've written about this, but I didn't yeah. realize that there was a woman involved.
0: Yeah, it's not that interesting a story. I hesitate to get into
1: well, it. Well, I mean, you can't I you can't just drop it in there.
0: Well, you know, I, I I still remember at the youth hostel where I was staying, there was another girl who I absolutely should have been more interested in, uh, but wasn't because she wasn't, you know, a dangerous alcoholic, which back then apparently appealed to me. I wouldn't have put it in those terms, you know, I just I would have uh said, oh, she's just, you know, she's interesting. She's, she's uh, whatever. <laughs> I, I don't even want to listen to the voice of my younger self talk about that. But yeah, we just got into a situation. She got kicked out of a bar that we were in for, you know, being sort of a belligerent, sloppy drunk. And I was walking her back to the youth hostel and we met Two other people, one of whom was the responsible friend, walking his belligerent, sloppy, drunk friend back from whatever bar they'd been at, and our belligerent, sloppy, drunk friends got into it with each other. But because mine was a woman, I was the one who got stabbed. It's a very, it's a very chivalrous. But culture. You, you,
1: got how? How did this not end uh, in happily ever after? That's so romantic. You got stabbed uh, defending her honor. Well, that
0: was not the end of the relationship. It did go on for a (laughs) while after that, to to my discredit. Uh, But that, and you know, it's not like I learned a valuable lesson from that experience. That makes it sound too pat. I just found that the appeal of a certain kind of, you know, uh, energy, a glamorous dissolution or, or, or erratic behavior really waned for me.
1: Mm.
0: Like I remember going on another date with someone who turned up very late for the date and they had some crazy story to tell me about why they were late. And it just sounded like their life involved a lot of chaos all the time. And I never saw them again.
1: So when did that start to lose its appeal for you? Because I feel like I hear about you know, situations where people will be on a date and the guy will be like, oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm ready. I, I'm tired of crazy women. I, I want mm. somebody uh, re- reasonable. I want somebody, you know, I can, you know, I can talk to. I want somebody level-headed. And then, like, they don't, it's not really true. They, they still want a crazy <laughs> lady. So, like, yeah, how
0: do you parse that? I would say that I still value people for being interesting above other traits that might be wiser to value them for. Like, you know, I have, I have friends where our, our, the Venn diagrams of who we choose as friends overlap to some extent, but it's clear that we prioritize different things. Um, like some people want their friends to be uh, nice people. Um, and some people, I, I, I want my friends to be interesting and not because like they amuse me or give me good material, but I don't know. That's, it's just what I like. I know. Like, Do
1: you think your friends are nice? Do you care that they're nice?
0: Uh, or is that a drawback? Mo- they're mostly nice. Um, my friends who are not nice are, you know, lesser dosage friends.
1: I think you can be kind without being nice.
0: Oh, for sure. Yes. And kindness is important. Niceness, less so. Yeah. Niceness is a matter of, oh, I don't know, uh, manners and social mores. And kindness is more about actual ethics and, you know. Right. The what you might call the heart. Uh, But, you know, I just visited a friend for the weekend. And one of the things I love about that guy is when he opens his mouth to address some new topic or issue, I have zero idea what he might possibly say. Like, what will his opinion be? I don't know. Something cockamamie. Uh, But there's no way I could predict it. And I enjoy that about him immensely.
1: So the way you and I got to know each other is you... uh contributed an essay to the anthology that I edited about choosing not to have kids. You were one of three men in a collection of 16 essays.
0: Oh, gee, I didn't realize the demographics were that skewed, but you're right. Yeah, but
1: I actually think it's a good ratio because, like I said in the foreword, I think that's about, it's about consistent with the degree to which men fret about this versus women. Yeah, Jeff Dyer also had a piece in there uh, and Paul Lesicki has a piece in there so you're in, you're in good company and i wonder like it do you find that because you're not a parent getting older sort of you you there's not the material is not that right in front of you as much like and and by no means am i saying like this is why you should have kids <laughs> the only right. worst reason for having kids than like they take <laughs> care of you when you're old is like Some so you can write, to about, write them. about right <laughs> but but it is I don't know. Like there is something about growing older without that kind of noise in the background or stimulation mm-hmm. that does leave the
0: well perhaps a little more dry than it would be otherwise. Although writing about your kids is ethically fraught. I mean, I think, yeah. I think uh, we're the first generation of writers even to pause and worry about that. Like it used to be, you know, that I suppose you're alcoholic famous writer mom would say it's a romantic laugh get over it uh but yeah there's there's the question of you know using kids as material i mean you can you can ask them but can they give consent right
1: but even just like understanding the world you know what it is this is i think what i'm saying like i don't keep up with the culture i don't know mm. i i could not uh name but one taylor swift song i don't know any i don't understand any technology i don't know what's
0: going on i don't care Yeah, I feel okay about not caring about that. I mean, you know, pop music is the same always, and it does not matter to me what the current flavor or brand name of it is. And I'm proud of not caring about that. It's not a thing I need to clutter up my head with. But I I do think that your life lacks a certain obvious raison d'etre and narrative if you've chosen not to have kids. Um, And I think that may be one reason people do it is like whatever else you get up in the morning, you got to do that. And, you know, there's still growth and change for the better sometimes when you have kids. Whereas if you don't, you know, you're looking at a story of, of gradual decay. So you're, you're missing that built in narrative that goes with having children. I don't think that's a good reason to have kids either, but for sure, it, whatever's the main, the main story going on in most people's lives at this point is not what's going on for you and me.
1: So how are you feeling about, uh, your decision not to have kids these days?
0: You know, it's interesting both. I I wrote that essay about not having kids. And I also wrote the essay about the mortifying ordeal of being known. And I feel like subsequent events have called me on my bullshit in that I'd never really had to confront either of those things in the way that I've had to since then. Like in, in one case, the mortifying ordeal of being known, uh, I lived with someone for the first time in my life, in my fifties, I've never lived with anyone before. And that's the mortifying ordeal of being known. Like, just to be brief, what's difficult about that is not that the other person is annoying. It is that you are annoying. It is that you are a very annoying, boring person who does nothing but complain all the time. And now somebody knows that and gets to experience it 24-7. Whereas before, no one had, you know, people just got this carefully curated version of you that was interesting and had funny things to say. And they could imagine the rest of you. Um, not realizing that 97% of you is just like guy on drugs on the couch looking at memes.
1: I know. <laughs> yes, it sounds like you describe a perfect marriage. But do you think that it gets uh, – I mean, this is, again, such a cliche. Like the older we get, we get set in our ways, and then it gets hard to partner with somebody or live with somebody. So like people who have been together from a very young age, living together, et cetera, they're just less self-conscious. And so well, and, it's and you probably –
0: I think that's probably true. And, you, you know, you get the mortifying ordeal out of the way sooner. And also you form each other. Right. You know, I, I, you, your, your brains shape each other's like two nuts growing in the same shell when you're, when you're young. Whereas when you're older, yeah, you're like, it's like two alien cultures meeting. Yeah. But I'm, I'm sorry. I feel like I, we can bookmark that, but I failed to answer your original question the, about kids
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Like the
0: other way in which my, my bullshit was called was that I actually had to decide in real life whether or not to have kids. Like it was not an unconsidered decision when I wrote the essay, but it was untested. But, you know, someone I loved and had been in a relationship with for years wanted to have kids. And we either had to, I had to decide to have kids or we had to break up. Uh, and it was a very horrible time in my life.
1: No, I remember it. I mean, yeah, we we talked a lot, and uh, I, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school. But so you and I and Laura Kipnis, uh, who's also been a guest here, we would get together periodically, and Laura was also in my book about choosing not to have kids. She chose not to have kids and wrote mm-hmm. an essay about it. And I don't know if you know this, but she and I would talk behind your back about how we thought that you should probably just bite the bullet and have kids because mm. you're
0: why why, why so friend,
1: because you're because she's so lovely and you obviously had this wonderful relationship and your girlfriend was willing to like well, how did this go? She had a great job. Was it? Was it? You were going to have to be the the primary caregiver. Was that? Was that part of it?
0: I mean, that wasn't an explicit arrangement, but it seemed likely. <laughs> she that's she did have a, a better happen. job than you.
1: Yeah. It was, well, she, she was had making, a uh, job that <laughs> she had her to money. go to. But it, this was very interesting. And
0: that paid her money for yes,
1: right. And so, and Laura and I, we admitted to our own hypocrisy even as we ha- talked about this because we mm-hmm. said, "Okay, are we being?" actually sexist because on some level we're saying, all right, if Tim, it it would be unacceptable for us to have kids and, and we need, and the world needs to take our decision seriously and our reasons seriously. But Mm -hmm. Tim should just go along with it because like, he's only the dad and it's not going to (laughs) disrupt his life as much.
0: Only the dad. Yeah. Um, Well, I don't know that you are wrong. Who knows? I mean, I think what I, if if I say one thing that might be of use to anyone else in this interview, it would be this. I realized too late that what would have clarified that decision would be this. I spent all that time trying to want to have kids and I didn't, I did not want to have kids. I've never wanted to, and I wasn't going to suddenly start wanting them. What I wanted was to be with this person. So the decision I had to make was, well, given that you don't want kids, but you'll have to have them to stay with this person. Do you want to do that? Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead of waiting magically for my mind to change somehow. Whether I would have done that had I framed it differently, I, I don't know. I'm not sure it would have ended any differently. I think you should probably want to have kids the you know uh, generations of kids raised by people who didn't necessarily want them would probably testify to that
1: yeah and i too wanted to want to have kids and had quite a sad you know marriage relationship situation
0: it's also true that most people who have kids seem not to regret it or at least they don't admit it well uh, have I, you ever
1: <laughs> ty- have you ever typed i regret having kids into google I have not.
0: Perhaps that would oh. be um, a, a balm. <laughs> I can't to me.
1: believe, can't believe you didn't do that while you were doing all this soul searching. Yeah, mm. there's quite a lot of people who, sotto voce, will say that they regret having kids. It's absolutely the last, most unspeakable topic. Like nobody mm. would say this out loud. It's not most people, but I think that it's certainly not unheard of.
0: Well, and it seemed. It's impossible to know the future. I mean, I've certainly changed in ways I would not have anticipated years or decades ago. And it's quite possible that I would have changed beyond recognition. I'm certainly very devoted to my students as a teacher. So who knows? Maybe I would have been world's greatest father. But it also seemed possible that like, well, what if I decide to do this and then do not like having kids? Um, And then I'm trapped in a life I don't like.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it is. It's like the Matrix, right? <laughs> That's the problem.
0: I just spent a weekend with, uh, as I told you, a friend of mine who's got a young child. And that kid loves me undeservedly for reasons unclear. Like he tells me, Tim, you're the best guy in town, which is nice to hear. Um, but <laughs> How big is kid, the town, though? It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's like a small Connecticut town, still. <laughs> yeah.
1: Tell him to come um, to New York.
0: But it's exhausting, like kids are very high energy and they want your attention all the time and I don't know that my fatigue from that would change even if i even if it was you know everyone says it's different when they're yours, but how different would it be?
1: I know that's what my parents always said we hate other kids, but we like you
0: well i'm I'm sure that um, would have would have been true of me too, but well it's I, just
1: I know the other thing is though i mean i I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I relate to everything that you're saying, but it's also true that when we think about kids, we think about little kids and we think about how labor intensive they are. Mm-hmm. For, for most of our relationship with our offspring, those offspring are going to be adults.
0: Yeah, true. Uh, I mean, I think at a certain point they get to be people you can have a conversation with and that must be nice. I mean, there's probably a very brief window where they can have interesting conversations with you and they actually want to. <laughs> Well, before they realize you're an asshole and stop talking to you and become surly teens.
1: Right, but then when they, yeah, but then they become adults.
0: Hopefully they come, but yeah, and then they're yelling at you because you told them to stop at a stop sign.
1: <laughs> okay, All right. I, I can see you've thought this through. So, so have you talked to a lot of other men about this issue or did you feel very alone with this?
0: I mean, I talked to... Most of the good friends in my life, when I was going through this decision making or this, you know, not decision making process, you know, my my friend who I saw this weekend is very happy. He's it's it's the best thing that's ever happened in his life. And he was not a responsible dude for most of his life. It's uh, a radical change for him. But you know, I I have some male friends who are very comfortable in never having wanted to have kids. And then others who have them. And, you know, often you you don't lose touch with people when they have kids, but you don't hear from them as much. Their lives are much busier, and they now are obliged to be friends with other people who also have kids. Yeah. Um, just circumstantially.
1: Yeah, and one of the things I've noticed, and I've talked about this a little bit, is that when women talk about choosing not to have kids, there's often a kind of em- you-go-girl empowerment kind
0: of mm-hmm. flavor
1: to it. And men, I think, get saddled with this Peter Pan
0: syndrome yeah, stereotype. I, I would imagine people probably see me as a case of arrested development. And
1: is this something that you actively think about now? Or is it like enough in the past?
0: Well, no, I don't think I've ever stopped second guessing and regretting any decision I've ever made. My girlfriend and I, we, we live uh, a good distance apart and we're trying to work out a sort of life pattern where we spend some time in each other's places and some time apart. And everyone we've talked to about this, especially married people or people in long-term relationships gets a little wistful about it and says, yeah, that sounds about right. Like spending maybe two thirds of your time together.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I don't know. I think, I think even, Marriage is an odd institution, you know. It's somewhat vestigial at this point. Like its original utilitarian purposes have, have crumbled, and there's this edifice left uh, that was supposed to be ornamental. That's now the whole raison d'être of you know you'll just be in love for the rest of your life with this person. And I think you know there used to be extended families and a, just much more of a world that you shared. And I yeah. think yeah, two two people being a world for decades is it's too much pressure for anyone to withstand there's there's well there's a lot of people looking around for other models right now
1: are you suggesting polyamory is the solution oh i'm
0: not suggesting it for me i'm just saying that culturally lots of people are looking for some other model cuz this one appears not to be working so well
1: yeah what do you think of kind of the direction that human civilization is going in. Like let's let's just oh start in, in terms Lord. of relationships because we hear about how nobody like the young people are not having sex anymore, they can barely date.
0: I don't really know, I, I don't know whether that's true or not. Uh, but maybe between the internet and quarantine they they failed to be socialized.
1: I mean, this was going on before quarantine though. This is Yeah.
0: Well, a the internet also. Trend. I mean, they're not they're not apparently wild to get driver's licenses, either, right? because you don't you don't necessarily need to physically go anywhere to get away from your parents and meet people like yourself,
1: but what do you think about like just male
0: female relations these days? They're boy, I, I don't know that's a. <laughs> I mean, you're that's, a student that's a of this broad question.
1: I ask you because you write so eloquently about this, and you're also mm-hmm. old enough to have seen a lot of cultural shifts, and so you know we've got a situation now where more women women are getting better educated. There's mm-hmm. this hypergamy idea which which is like that there aren't as many quote unquote high value men, especially in big cities. You've got like a whole bunch of women, a whole bunch of very, very highly educated. Women competing for a very small pool of of men, like what do you
0: make of all that uh, I would say I find it interesting uh that 's not a very good answer, but you know my whole life, you know, I was a fairly basic guy. I wanted to sleep around, and so my whole life, I thought of monogamy as this template this boilerplate contract that you just had to sign and there was all this fine print and you didn't even get to read the fine print it was like look you do want to be in a relationship just sign the contract and you had to sign it and these days people are rewriting the contract to suit themselves Mm -hmm. with what outcomes i guess we'll find out i mean you know sometimes polyamory or polycules. Result in as 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 a lot of large molecules, they fall apart <laughs> or explode. Um, but who who knows? I think we probably hear less about successful situations. I think people are trying a lot of stuff, and some of it won't work, and some of it will work for this part of history. And I don't know. We're we're reinventing things. It's interesting, and of course. It, anytime that happens, there's the backlash of people who want nothing to change ever and to return to a largely mythical past when things were better.
1: You mentioned earlier that you were not happy these days. You've written about happiness a lot, whatever mm-hmm.
0: that means. Well, I was asked to.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. Sorry. That's, that's the
0: default. Like I don't consider Either the it,
1: culture of narcissism or is happiness possible for column topics.
0: Yeah, right. I don't, I don't, I don't consider it a preoccupation of mine. Oh, I'm just not happy for mundane circumstantial reasons. Just, uh, I, I never quite came out of my pandemic funk. I mean, I was, I was in this very apartment by myself for a couple of years and I never quite emerged from, from that. I'm still not completely re-socialized and my personality is not going to be the same again, though it wouldn't have been the same anyway, because of age but i just had a lot of personal things happen I, my mother died i'm building a house which is a nightmare always i'm advised uh <laughs> but especially so in this case yeah we won't get into that uh, aren't you some aren't you some fiend for real estate i thought yeah, you'd be obsessed with i am with that. i
1: am uh yeah i am obsessed with real estate but i'm very easily triggered right now because it's so so terribly out of reach
0: Oh, well i appreciate that because it's it's i've actually I started meditating again the other day for the first time in maybe a decade. The last time I started was because I was having a bout of insane jealousy and my mind would not stop running like a hellish machine out of control. And this time it's because of some um, sliding doors that are being (laughs) installed in my new house.
1: See, I'm jealous that you even are building
0: a house. I hate having such boring grown up problems.
1: I don't think that's boring. I oh, would... it's
0: really boring. I, I hate talking about it to people. It's like, I remember when I was a kid how boring grown up conversations were about real estate and taxes and shit. And now that's the stuff that I worry about and complain about.
1: So, what are you jealous of? What makes you so jealous that you have to meditate?
0: Oh, well, this was a long time ago. That was the last time that I had to take up meditation, which was probably 2000 seven oh just someone i had broken up with started going out with a friend of mine okay so it was it was a bout of sexual jealousy among other things
1: okay so that that's a classic
0: uh yeah it was nothing very novel or interesting
1: yeah. Well, I'm going to you you wrote something about happiness. I'm just going to read this back to you and I wonder if you have any any thoughts or if you even remember writing this to perhaps the reason we so often experience happiness only in hindsight and that chasing it is such a fool's errand is that happiness isn't a goal in itself but is only an after effect. It's the consequence of having lived In the way that we're supposed to, by which I don't mean ethically correctly, so much just as consciously, fully engaged in the business of living.
0: Well, it sounds like some smarter person than me wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's true. I think probably in that essay, I even wrote about a, in fact, nice tie in. It was the very summer that I was forced to take up meditation because I was suffering from such insane jealousy. Uh, And I experienced it at the time as miserable. And it was indeed miserable, except that's the part I was focused on. But what was also happening was I was starting to go out with someone else and falling in love and living in the East Village. And I remember I I was next door to a community garden and they were rehearsing a production of The Tempest there. So they had one of those big sheets of metal they used to simulate uh, thunder (laughs) <laughs> and I would hear that during the day. And uh, I now remember it as a rather pleasant idyll, even though I experienced it at the time as miserable. Yeah, exactly. I don't think it's just rewriting the, falsifying the past. I think there were things going on in my life that were better than I wanted to focus on at that time. I, I was fixated for whatever reason on the foreground of being jealous and enraged, even though there was a whole other life going on simultaneously. Um, and that's and that's true of me now too.
1: But this is the kind of thing you you write about, just the layers of relationships. I mean, you have an amazing essay, I think it's in I Wrote This Book Because I Love You, about being in love with this one woman. I can't remember her name. Is it Lauren? For like uh-huh. years and years and years, and it was never romantic, or it was never really consummated, and you actually like you know had other relationships within that time, but there was just this kind of overarching, just very deep uh, affection for this person, Um, and I, I have never heard it quite I- expressed that way. I, I feel like people have a really hard time, kind of just even metabolizing the idea that like. Especially, you know, opposite sex people could have a very, very intense friendship Mm -hmm. while also having other sexual and romantic relationships.
0: Yeah. I think for me, at least for a long time, I sort of assembled the approximate equivalent of complete relationships out of a a bunch of different relationships. You know, it's getting all the components from different people that, you know, I think in sorry, what's it called? Trad? Trad life? Uh, you're supposed to get from one relationship.
1: Oh, I see. Well, this is what a, a friend of mine calls Frankensteining. So like you're uh, you're just imagining, you're building in your mind like the perfect person based on different attributes of different
0: people. Um, in fantasy, you would be able to assemble all the different characteristics you admire or desire from these people into one ideal person. But I think especially if you're someone like me and maybe you and and you are averse to what a traditional relationship demands of you it's easier to assemble you know fragmentary relationships into something that mostly fulfills all those needs
1: but why are we averse to the demands of a traditional relationship
0: probably boring infantile reasons, attachment theory, blah, blah, blah. But also eventually it it might just be that, well, for whatever reason, that's the kind of person you turned out to be. And now you have to accommodate that. And, you know, I had a friend who um, realized during a hallucinogenic experience that she'd become an artist because she didn't get enough love and approval in her family, and she needed it from the world, from strangers. And that's why she became an artist. And she didn't need that anymore. She now had assembled a family of her own. She had enough love in her life, but that had made her an artist. And that's what she was now. So I think it's valuable to, you know, go into therapy and get to the bottom of why you are the way you are, especially if you're not happy being the way you are. But then also at a certain point, maybe it doesn't matter. And you accept, well, that because that's the kind of person I am.
1: Yeah.
0: And we, we live in a time when you are allowed to arrange relationships in a lot of unconventional ways. And you can probably come up with something that'll work for a while anyway.
1: Yeah. I mean, I want to talk more in the bonus about being the age that you are and kind of how this maps on to just getting older. But yeah, I mean, this idea of you just are the way you are. I mean, w- with the not having kids thing, people would ask me, well, why is it that you don't want kids? Like, is it, did it something, was it something about your parents or was it something about your childhood? And the answer is it like, it, it really does, just doesn't matter. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, what matters is that this is how you feel and you're not going to change your mind.
0: I mean, there aren't any real rational reasons for wanting children. I mean it's it's a very powerful drive, but it doesn't make any sense.
1: I mean, do you ever wonder like why you are such a such an sort of evolutionary anomaly? Like, why don't we have this basic drive that almost everybody else has?
0: Oh, I don't know. There are probably some reasons in my own life that I could identify, but again, I think something that basic and deep, you maybe just have to accept, okay, I do not want that. I'm the kind of person who doesn't want that. But what do you do with that information? How do you construct a life? Like, I could still have decided to do it because other things were more important to me. But I don't know. I, I think that there are, you know, I'm not suggesting that, like, investigating your past or why you are the way you are is never useful. It often is. But there may be nothing you can do about the kind of person you are.
1: Yeah. In some I cases. I know. I know. Uh, and that's and, fine.
0: I mean, we, we love other people, even though we recognize them as ridiculous and screwed up. They're, we don't feel that they ought to be better than they are. I don't know why we feel that way about ourselves. No,
1: I don't want them to be better than they are, because then I would feel that much worse about myself.
0: You know, there was a, there was a guy in a documentary I watched about some cult or another, and he wasn't a former cult member. He was just a lawyer involved in the case. And they asked him out of curiosity, "Do you do you think you could have been seduced by this cult?" He's like, "No." They're like, "Really?" A lot of smart people were. Why not you? He's like, "Because I don't think I'm perfectible. I'm an ordinary screwed up schlub, and I'm always going to be. I'm, I'm not going to become some ideal version of myself." And this was the promise that the cult thrived on: is that you can become better. You know, you can transcend yourself, and this praise on people's desire to become some unreal perfect version of themselves. And you know, people aren't like that and you, you, you wouldn't really want them to be. And he seemed like invincibly sane to me, like it was a superpower, like, you know, con men and cult leaders just had zero power over this guy because he wasn't prone to that delusion.
1: Do you think you're equally unprone to that delusion?
0: Uh, I think I accept as a given that people are, you know, sometimes hilariously and sometimes contemptibly, you know, messed up and just like they are. Um, not not as they should be. You know, I'm not always very forgiving of it in myself, but <laughs> I, I'm as, obsessed. As I with, should be.
1: I I shouldn't say obsessed, but I enjoy watching those cult documentaries. Mm-hmm. There's a certain Schadenfreude like God, I would never be that stupid. Like, you know, as, as screwed up as I am, I'm not that screwed up.
0: Yeah, well, I think the interviewer was right that it wasn't a function of intelligence. There were lots of smart people there. Yeah. But, but they were all, you know, lacking something and seeking it. And I think the delusion is that it's out there to be found somewhere. In someone else in some, you know, because there's always a moment when you watch those documentaries where you hear people rhapsodize about the cult leader. Oh, what an inspiration, what a charismatic figure. And then you see him and he just looks like a bad dungeon master from high school or he's like some tittering speed freak. And you're like, that guy, that's who you devoted your life to? They're seeing something there that is not there. They're projecting something onto them. I don't know what. Yeah, I would be nice. I, I would like to think I would not be a sucker for that particular brand of delusion. But well,
1: it's never too late. All right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna move on to the the bonus in, in a minute and talk about aging just more uh, more Good more times. precisely, even more up close and personal than than this. But before we go, I want to ask you about a concept that you have coined, the soul toupee.
0: Oh yeah, that was a concept coined in a bar in Baltimore, in Cross Street Market, must have been in the 90s, uh, with a friend of mine. Because there was a guy who was often at that bar who had just a a movingly obvious and sad toupee. And as we consumed our 32-ounce beers, we moved through many stages uh, with this toupee, one of which was to make fun of the toupee, another was to feel sorry for the man in the toupee and then finally reflected that we probably had things about ourselves that were not literal toupees, but were just as pathetically, endearingly obvious to everyone around us, which we felt we had successfully covered up and pulled the wool over everyone's eyes. And, you know, to return to our original conversation about people talking about you behind your back, I don't think it's for us to know what our own soul toupees are. I don't think it's good to know. No one needs to tell that guy, you know, Frank, everyone knows you wear a toupee and it's fine. Nobody cares that you're bald. I think it's just a mercy to let people wear their toupee because it's clearly a thing that they're sensitive about unless it's, I don't know. It, embarrassing them further or just or <laughs>
1: unless, giving them a rash or some kind. Yeah. Of right. Unless comes.
0: it's causing a harm. I would just, I would just rather everyone as a mercy to me, a kindness, just not let me know what thing it is. I think everyone doesn't know about me.
1: All right, Tim. Well, thank you so much. We'll do this again. All right. That was my interview with writer Tim Kreider. He is the author of the essay collections, We Learn Nothing, and I wrote this book because I love you. He's been a regular columnist at Medium and has contributed to the New York Times, the New Yorker's Page Turner blog, Al Jazeera, Vox, Nerve, Men's Journal, lots of other places. He's also a cartoonist. His cartoons have been collected in three books by Fantagraphics Books. His cartoon, The Pain, When Will It End? We didn't even talk about this, but this is a a big part of his story. Ran for 12 years in the Baltimore City paper and other alternative weeklies. And you can find them at thepaincomics.com. Again, if you want to hear the rest of this conversation, the bonus portion, become a paying subscriber to the Substack at megandown.substack.com. And you get lots of perks when you do that. What else? You can find this podcast on YouTube now, in addition to the other places where you usually listen to it. That's the Unspeakable podcast on YouTube. There will be an unspeakeasy one-day retreat in Denver on Saturday, September 30th. So go to the unspeakeasy.com to find out more about that. And finally, I'm going to be teaching a personal essay and memoir class on Zoom this fall, six consecutive Wednesdays, starting September 6th. So go to the Substack to find out about that. You do not have to be a paying subscriber to read that post. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.